If you've got a Bible, you can open it to Matthew 13. And if you're a little person, you can go to children's church. If you're like fourth grade on down kind of thing. Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom parables we've been looking at. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads one more time because we're approaching the word together. Father, this is your word. It is our truth for us and for our time. It's truth for all time until the end of age. And so we ask you to give us deep understanding on a difficult topic and somewhat controversial in our time. Not to those who know you and love your word, though, but we just pray you'd give us understanding and help us know the times we live in and the greatness of your message in the cross of Christ, Lord. In his name we pray, amen. All right, Matthew 13. We're going to talk about Dragnet today. <laughs> when I was a kid, I loved the show Dragnet. Remember that show? Bare Bones Cop Show, based on real events. The story you're about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Anybody remember that? I kind of liked it. I liked the simple style and the, the weird characters. He always ran into, you know, Sergeant Friday and Officer Gannon always ran into these really strange people. And about 12 actors played all of those people. They always just like, hey, I saw that guy last week. And it's all dressed differently. It was really fun. But I think what I most liked it, about it was Sergeant Friday's speeches. Um, he always had some really common sense in your face wisdom when it was finally time to sell to tell somebody who had messed up or who was a hard-nosed bigot or some wild revolutionary what the real world is like. You know, just kind of let them have it. In fact, you can go on YouTube and just uh, search Sergeant Friday's speeches and you can just increase your wisdom dramatically right there. <laughs> but in fact, Sergeant Friday's speeches actually helped me navigate the very weird world I grew up in. Because I was born in 1959, so I was a child in the 60s. I mean, a child in this, not a child of the 60s. I was a child in the 60s. And, uh, you know, we were living in weird times. I mean, revolutionary times. And today we think, we think about the cultural revolution back then and all of that. But, I mean, there was a real revolution going on. People were being killed. Bombs were going off. I mean, riots in the streets. And uh, all those people that did all that stuff now teach in the major universities. But um, it was a hard time being a child to kind of know how to navigate that, that world of people that were older than me and supposed to be wise and were acting so crazy. So, but Sergeant Friday really helped. I, he just kinda, I just listened to those for Sergeant Friday. Two people, Sergeant Friday and Mr. Dixon on room 222. Those, those two people kind of gave me wisdom for life. My parents must have told me something, but I don't remember that. I remember Sergeant Friday and, and Mr. Dixon, but anyway. No, my parents said a lot of good stuff too. But, but those were the cultural voices that kind of spoke to me and helped me navigate that time. So we don't have voices like that in the popular culture, unfortunately, in the current mess we're in when we really need them. But anyway, Sergeant Friday had one thing he always said because people that the detectives would interview would always ramble and they had some kind of an agenda often, so he would say, just tell me the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. And that's what people remember, just the facts, ma'am. So that's what he'd always say that. So um, today, we're looking at a parable of Jesus about a dragnet, that's what made me think about it. And we wanna get, we wanna get to just the facts, because it's a really important topic. Okay, it doesn't really have any new information in it, it's reinforcing and making inescapable information we've already seen in chapter 13 in a previous parable. So um, these are spiritual realities that many people, especially modern people, don't want to face, but they're clearly taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the seventh 
and the last of the kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13. How do we know it's a kingdom parable? Because of the way it starts. The kingdom of heaven is like, and now he's going to tell us, right? So that's Jesus' special phrase to introduce kingdom parables. And Matthew 13 is just full of kingdom parables. So let's read it, then we can talk about why it's so helpful theologically. So again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers and the bad they threw away. In verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here we have another parable that Jesus actually explains, thank the Lord. That's always helpful because if something is uncomfortable as this one is to modern ears, because he explains it, we can't escape it. A Christian has a a duty to accept the words of our king, whether we like them or not. And I don't dislike them. I don't have a problem with this. Um, Some folks really do have a problem with this. I don't have a problem with it because I really believe that I deserve to go to hell. So um, that there is a hell totally fits with my basic being. But um, the problem people have is, is the problem modern people have with it is that at the end, not everybody gets a trophy. That's sort of what it is. Um, Everyone on earth is separated into two groups here. There's two categories of people. There's the good fish and the bad fish. And all the teaching of Christ always, at the end, it's always two groups of people, always, you know. And this is just another example of that, the righteous and the wicked. So it's always two categories, good and bad. The keepers, the fish you keep, and the fish you throw away. Always two groups. And their end is completely different. That's why C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce, because at the end there's going to be a great divorce between the righteous and the wicked, and the righteous are all going to go one place in one way, and the wicked are all going to go to another place. In fact, they're going to be thrown into another place, Jesus says. And if you've been with us, you'll notice how similar this particular parable, the dragnet parable is, to the parable of the wheat and the tares, which is just a little bit farther back in the chapter. In fact, if you look at verse 40, this is how Jesus explained that parable. He said, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, same thing, huh? And they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and all who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he adds this, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So you can take verse 40 here and compare it to verse 49 and 50 and see that they're very similar. I mean, the details, just the earlier parable is a little bit more detail. Why does it have more detail? Well, because I think it's very helpful to have all that detail. Why does the dragnet parable reduce the amount of detail? I think so he can focus on the end of the wicked because that's that's definitely what he's emphasizing here. You've got to emphasize that so that the wicked will have a chance to become righteous and find the righteousness of Christ. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But that's, that's why. So he focuses here more on the bad fish, the unrighteous, and what's going to happen to them. These are people who are the lawless or the stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks are people that like to make other people sin, that delight in it. 
And lawlessness are people that break God's laws. Anybody here just a total not breaker of God's laws? Don't raise your hand, please. Um, we've, all, we've all broken God's laws, and um, so we're all in that basic condition where we're starting together. Um, but listen to what he's saying here. Human souls will be cast into a fiery furnace. And that's the right place for them to go. They deserve to go there. It's, it's an aspect of God's goodness that they go there. So while that truth was taught in the earlier parable, here it's focused on more narrowly and purposefully to keep us from ignoring that, what he said, because people want to kind of push that away. They don't want to think about that. So let's talk about the parable a little bit. Jesus draws his illustration right from life. Anybody that lived near the Sea of Galilee would have seen this happen many times, dragnets. Dragnets are huge, they're huge. You need, uh, either need two boats to do it, you can't do it with one boat. There's little versions of nets you throw in the ocean, you know, and you pull them up. But their dragnets are gigantic, they're a couple hundred meters long perhaps, and maybe eight meters high, you know, and they'd put sinkers on one end and floaties on the other end so they'd spread out like that. And then either two boats would pull them, or more commonly, there'd be men on the shore that had a, a long rope that anchored one end and then the boat would go out and drag it and then come back to shore and then they'd other, another team of guys would grab the boats. These two teams would start pulling and you couldn't stop pulling because if you do, the fish will escape so they just keep going, walking up the shore or pulling it or whatever and that would drag the net up onto the shore. So that catch of fish could be so large you'd never get it in a boat. So they went straight onto the shore with them and that's exactly what he's describing here. So the good fish are the keepers. The bad fish are not to be used. Now, what's a bad fish? Well, it, he doesn't say, but I mean, it's not about that anyway. It's about the end of the age and human beings. But probably in this particular setting, it would be fish or sea creatures that are not permitted to be eaten by the Jews. You know, there was a very detailed law in the law of Moses about what you could eat, and that had a lot of detail in it about things that you catch in the sea or in the ocean. Um, in fact, Leviticus 9, 11, Leviticus 11, verse 9, it says, These you may eat, whatever is in the water, all that have fins and scales. Those in the water, in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that does not have fins and scales, among all the teeming life of the water, and among all the living creatures that are in the water, these are detestable things to you, and they shall be abhorrent to you. If you like... Shrimp, I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, but if you're a Gentile, it's okay. Um, they shall be abhorrent to you. You may not eat of their flesh and their carcasses you shall detest. Whatever in the water does not have fins and scales is abhorrent to you. So no crab, no octopus, no shrimp, nothing like that. Just fish. And they had to be fish with scales. In fact, there's a certain kind of catfish that lives in the Sea of Galilee that doesn't have scales. And they weren't allowed to eat that. So if they were doing the dragnet and they pulled it up, that catfish... He'd go in the bad fish pile or, or with the you know, other kinds of sea creatures that aren't fish, that don't have scales and fins. So the Jews were under quite a few dietary restrictions and the purpose of that was to keep them separated from their neighbors so they wouldn't get too close to their pagan neighbors and take up their ways, which they did anyway. But um, also there's some pretty clear health benefits to eating according to the dietary laws, but uh, Jesus changed all that in Mark chapter 7, so uh, we can eat whatever we want now, though you should be a little bit careful. Uh, so on the beach, they're separating and they're keeping what is good and getting rid of what is bad, and what, 
What makes Jesus think of this fishing process as an illustration is, the, is the, this fact of sorting. And they're sorting into two groups. The groups we're gonna keep, eat and sell, and the groups that are we gonna get rid of, throw away or whatever they did with them, bury them or something. So um, he knows how the kingdom is coming and he says that that is what the end of the age is going to be like. So he's telling people that would have seen this a million times, think about what happens when the dragnet's pulled up. All the, the whole team's run over there and they're separating the fish into two groups. And he says, that is what the end of the age is gonna be like. And the angels are gonna come and take the bad people out from among the good people and dispose of them in a fiery furnace. That's, that's the message here. So he knows that. So he's sharing that. The wicked are thrown into a furnace of fire because there's a kingdom of justice and righteousness that the Messiah is going to establish upon the earth. And they are not fit for that kingdom. So they're gonna be taken out and the, those that are alive at that time will enter into that messianic kingdom. But the wicked are thrown into this furnace of fire where there will be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth, deep sorrow and agony. In fact, that's exactly what the last book of the Bible describes, uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse five. It says, he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. And then it says, but for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be with the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's pretty horrific. So the language used in the book of Revelation is perfectly consistent with the teaching of Jesus in these parables and in his life. Nobody talked about hell in the Bible more than the Lord Jesus Christ. He talked about it far more than Paul or Peter or anybody else. It was his doctrine because he knows. He knows and he wants to warn us about it. You can't really call yourself a Christian and just say, oh, I don't know, I don't believe that. You can't do that because he's your king and it's his truth, right? It's really interesting that nearly every cult, every, all these little spin-off religions that have their own leaders and authorities and stuff, they all deny the doctrine of hell. Uh, almost all of them. They don't believe it. The fiery furnace. They say, oh, that's silly, you know. And it's the one thing Satan doesn't want you to believe in. He, he doesn't want you to believe that. So he makes sure you hear plenty of religious people that will say that's not true. That's kind of his job. Remember, all the way back in the garden, Satan's, Satan's tactical approach to human beings was to, to say, has God said, remember that? Did God really say that? All the way back in the garden. Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And when he says that to Eve, she says, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat? but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Good girl, so far. And then Satan says, you surely will not die. So first he puts questions in your heart. Did God really say that? 
And then he flat out contradicts what God says. That's how he operates. God is lying to you about that. He's not like that. It's not, the world isn't like that. There's no judgment like that. You're not going to die. Take, take a bite. I actually was talking with a friend very recently about the parable of the wheat and the tares because she heard the sermon on that. And she's in a cult that denies hell and denies, well, in fact, they deny that God is a person altogether. And she listened to the sermon on the wheat and the tares and she said, I agree with everything you said except that part. And I said, you mean like verse 42 where it says the Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and throw them into the furnace of fire and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth? That part? She goes, yes, that part. And then she said, you don't believe that, do you? You can't believe that. You can't believe that God would do that. I said, I not only believe it, Jesus believed it. And that's where I take my beliefs from. That's what matters. How, how can you regard Jesus as a spiritual master, which is what she does regard him as, if you don't believe what he says about that? Because he's so clear. She said, but God is love, right? I mean, he just wouldn't do that. And I made this horrible mistake. I said, you sound just like Rob Bell. And she'd never heard of Rob Bell. And, and she said, who's that? And I said, well, he wrote this book saying that, you know, at the end, everybody's going to be saved, and there's really not going to be anything because God's too nice. It's called Love Wins. And she goes, I got to get that book. And I'm going, oh. <laughs> that was dumb. <laughs> and she did get it. She ordered it, and she called me up, and she said, that is a great book. And I said, no, it's not a great book. But at least we got to talk about it more. So I want to talk about Rob Bell a little bit. Jack Webb and Rob Bell, that's this sermon. Um, who's Rob Bell? Well, you might not know, you, you cannot exaggerate the impact in a very brief span of time that he had on evangelical churches in America as one of us at the time. He was one of those very trendy, super cool, mega church pastors that everybody talks about in ministry circles about that's the way to go. You gotta do church like Rob Bell does church because his church went from nothing to 11,000 people in just a few years and it's true, it did. And he, he was a kind of a a Christian band guy, and he went to seminary out here at Fuller Seminary, very bad choice, by the way, and he uh, went back to the Midwest, and he planted this church in Michigan, and it started in this some little thing, then he moved to this mall, and kind of took over the mall, and he went from very small to 11,000 people within just a few years, I mean, just a few years, they really planted the church, um, what, was the, what was the year, I wrote it down, 1999 is when he planted it. And within six years, he had 11,000 people. That's, that's pretty impressive. And so, you know how ministry people are. They're like, oh, how did he do it? Let's find out how he did it. And all that, kind of, they're all worried about that and want to build giant churches. He, now, if you don't know, our church belongs to an organization called the IFCA, International Independent Fundamental Churches of America. <sighs> International, too many syllables. And he, he built that mega church across the street from the national office of the IFCA. In fact, he was raised in the IFC. It's very strong in Michigan. And, he was, and I talked to his Sunday school teacher at a national convention one time about him because of the things that happened. But in, in, um, so, so that church was right across the street. And in 2007, um, oh, I forgot to tell you about his cool videos. Numa. Numa. Now, Numa is spelled 
P-N-E-U-M-A, but he spelled it N-O-O-M-A. And he wore really cool modern clothes, skinny pants, and really thin sunglasses, you know, and he had these cool videos. And he, he kind of asked questions during them. They had cool music and really modern style video stuff. And he became really famous, very famous. And then he wrote a book called Velvet Elvis. And I'm not gonna bother explaining why it's called that, but. He, he basically was saying, we have to look at Christianity in a new and fresh way, and not, not the old way. And um, in 2007, one of the top Christian magazines said he was, they, they had a list of the 50 most influential Christians in the world at that time, and he was number 10. That's how important he was. And in 2007, no, 2011, in June, June 2011, Bell was named by Time Magazine they had their uh, top 100 people, the Time 100. That's the magazine's annual list of the 100 most influential people in the world. The 100 most influential people in the whole world. And he was on that list. That's, that's ego-stroking. That's pretty impressive. And the media loved him. They loved him because that same year, he wrote a book called Love Wins. And that's the book my friend, I blurted out and my friend read Love Wins in which he questions everything Christians believe Rob Bell questions everything Christians believe about salvation and essentially said he didn't think anybody would be in hell forever because love wins and God is love right that was the whole perspective of that and a few months after that huge honor in Time Magazine in June of 2011 by September he'd resigned from his church and struck out for California Southern California and um, it's kind of amazing what happened. Now, he tells different stories about that. He built this giant church. It was called Mars Hill. It's still there, but it's smaller now. But um, he came out here, and he's, he, sometimes he says, my church sent me off to conquer the world and become a big name in the media and all that kind of stuff. And then sometimes he says he had to leave because they were just so narrow-minded that he, won, he went on a search for, quote, a more forgiving faith and he was looking for something different. So there's a lot of different stories about that. Anyway, he left his megachurch, came to Southern California to surf and write books and get a TV show. And he found the perfect spiritual backer, a, a really strong spiritual leader of our nation to kind of uphold him in his new goals, Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> and he said in an interview, quote, she has taught me more about what Jesus has for all of us and what kind of life Jesus wants us to live more than almost anybody in my life. And the interviewer was kind of surprised and the, and the interviewer said, is she a Christian? And Bell said, that word has so much baggage, I wouldn't want to answer for someone else. So when Jesus talks about the full divine life, you think this, this is what he's talking about. So yeah, that's what it's all about man, the full divine life. That's, that's where he is. So he went on these new age speaking tours with Oprah around the country and he was one of her key speakers in these things, teaching new age thinking and stuff like that. And he was trying to get a TV gig for a while and they were going to try to get one on Oprah's network and all of that stuff, which never really panned out because he's, he's not that exciting. But um, he said, quote, I affirm the truth anywhere in any religious system, in any worldview. If it's true, it belongs to God. There's one little problem with thinking like that. 
how do you decide what's true? Because when you say that, you make yourself the arbiter of truth, right? If I say truth is in all religions, then I'm picking and choosing, and then I'm God because I'm deciding what is true, right? God is actually ranked under you because you're the arbiter of truth, which is exactly what Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, um, you shall be as God, knowing good and evil. You can decide your own good and evil. You'll be autonomous, separated. You can do your own thing. And then he said, quote, this is not just the same old message with new methods. We're rediscovering Christianity as an Eastern religion, as a way of life. And then he said something really important. I don't want you to miss this sentence. Legal metaphors for faith don't deliver a way of life. That's both untrue and, um, and, a, and a very cleverly packaged um, deception when he said that. And what does he mean by that? Legal metaphors can only refer to the doctrine of justification by faith, by which the Protestant Reformation um, exalted again and found again, and it's Paul's doctrine, and that we are legally declared right before God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the, so when he says legal metaphors, he's saying that's not really what it's all about. It's a way of life. And he's implying that if you believe that, you don't have a way of life which of course is totally contrary to what scripture would say, that is your way of life. If you're legally justified before God and born again, you've got a whole new life, a much better life, and a much more significant life than surfing and getting TV shows, by the way. Truly. So he's trying to be deceptive that, to get people to think that the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, justification by faith, doesn't deliver a way of life. So he's playing in Hollywood and Christians who love the gospel are sacrificially serving people in many, many ways all over the world, risking their lives. I mean, there's people who know that they're unworthy of heaven and they're grateful for a salvation earned by Christ that they can only access by faith and that justifies them before God that they did not deserve and they're living and suffering and dying for Jesus all over the world. And that's, that is a way of life and death. It's a way of eternal life. So he's very subtly um, trying to undercut the whole foundation of Christianity with that kind of comment. There's a reason that Christians have always believed in hell, and it's because Jesus taught it. That's why. That's the reason. That's the only reason. And he taught it in such a way, like here, that he left us no room to deny it. There's no place to deny it once you look at what he actually says. You, if you're going to deny it, you have to deny his authority over us, and which is what Rob Bell does, because he's the authority. There's truth in every religion. I pick what I like. So why spend so much time on poor Rob Bell today? Because he was an evangelical mega superstar. I mean, and I use the word superstar to describe both his influence and how shallow his influence actually is. He's an enormous influence, and he helped damage or compromise or sink altogether the faith of many, many, many thousands of people. You can go online today and just read what people say about him. Oh, he opened my eyes to how untrue the Bible is and this and that, you know. We need to be way more careful about which Christian celebrities we embrace. Way more careful. You probably know that cool and sophisticated are actually not qualifications for leadership in the biblical passages which describe who should be your leaders. And there's very detailed passages about that, the qualifications for leadership, and that's not one of them. Skinny jeans and stuff, and that's not part of it. 
people ignore those requirements way too often. Way too often. They don't, they don't use them to measure. And we live in a world that's so interconnected through media that it's so easy to adopt Christian role models from all over the place, who people you don't even know, but they project a sort of image, which is what he did. So you've got to be really careful, really careful. And anyone paying attention, and some noticed right away that Rob Bell did not love God's word. He was always questioning that. I, so I do think, um, I think I understand the attraction that he had, though, uh, you know, just looking at his stuff way back when. He questioned, he questioned a kind of rigid fundamentalism that many people do find distasteful and confining and um, unchristlike, and that's a le- there's legitimate criticisms there about some of that kind of stuff, uh, maybe the way he was raised. But instead of leading people to a fuller, brighter Christian life based on the gospel, Bell used that discontent or that discomfort with a certain kind of fundamentalism to lead people away from God and his word. And that's what deceiving people do. So you've got to be really careful. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 20 says, if they, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. There's no light coming. There's no light breaking forth over there at Mars Hill Church when a guy's doing that. Lots of good men have challenged and grown beyond a rigid fundamentalism subculture and remain faithful to the word of God. There are people that do that. So if you want to go that path, you find those good people. Rob Bell didn't do that. It's that simple. He just abandoned the faith. But on the subject of eternal punishment, I'm going to read one more thing from him. This is what he said. And this is how he thinks, and this is how he's trying to get you to think. Then there's the question behind the questions, he says. The real question, what is God like? That's a good question. Because millions and millions of people were taught that the primary message, the center of the gospel of Jesus is that God is going to send you to hell unless you believe in Jesus, which is a twisted way to say that. So what gets subtly sort of caught and taught is that Jesus rescues you from God. But what kind of God is it that we would need to be rescued from this God? That is a great question. What kind of God is it that we would need to be rescued from God? The answer is really simple. A holy God. He never gives that answer. He knew that answer. If he went to Fuller Seminary, he at least knew that Christians have always taught that God is holy, but he never talks about God that way. How could he have missed that? Well, he didn't miss it. He just wants you to question God so he doesn't offer you the answer. Listen, here's how it goes. Here's here's life. If the problem is us, if we are sold out to sin, if we are unrighteous, if we are the moral pollution in the universe, then God's holy wrath against evil is properly and deservedly directed at us. That's just it. So I don't question it because I know how wicked I am. I know what I deserve. So it's not hard for me to buy that. That makes perfect sense. I don't even get how a holy God could put up, puts up with me. Actually, I do know because he's, he's got what the Bible calls a mega love as well. The Apostle Paul, who was chosen by Jesus to explain salvation to us, says in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, 
you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You can't get any clearer than that. God is holy and good, and because he's good, he's just, and because he's just, he's gotta punish sin. So God's judgment is righteous. So yeah, we need to be rescued from God. That's exactly it. He wants you to change your view of God, to have this soft, sentimental, squishy view of God. But the reality is that God is holy and righteous and hates evil. Yeah, we need to be rescued from God. We absolutely do. That's basic. That's basic Christianity. He imagines a God who is love but is not good, not holy, not the judge of his creation. His God's love is a sentimental kind of love. For, for Rob Bell, man is good, you know, like Oprah. And God is suspect. The Bible says about man several times, three times, uses these exact words. There is none righteous, not even one. In another place it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter six, it says, the wages of sin is death. So let's go back to Matthew uh, 13, 41 for a minute. Look back up at verse 41. Jesus' words are so clear. I'm gonna read it one more time. The son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So the son of man is Jesus. I mean, he often called himself that. It's a messianic title from the book of Daniel. Jesus will send forth his angels to gather out everyone who is not righteous, the ones who break God's laws, who delight in sin. Well, wait a minute. Didn't you just say that was you? Isn't that, wasn't I talking about me as one of those lawbreaker guys? Yeah, I was. See, once, once they're gone, of those wicked people, the world's gonna be given to the righteous, but I, I just read you verses that said there's nobody righteous, so how's that work? Who's gonna shine forth as the sun? The answer to that is those who become righteous in Jesus Christ. That is the great truth of the gospel. That's the great reality of the gospel. Are you listening? This is the great reality of God's love and the reason Jesus died on the cross for sin, on our behalf. He bore on the cross the just, holy punishment for our sin, our unrighteousness, our unrighteous thoughts, our unrighteous motives, our unrighteous deeds. He paid for our sin. The Bible says that very plainly. And because Jesus did that, God takes our sin and puts them on him and takes his perfect life, his righteousness, and credits it. The Bible uses the word, it imputes it, imputes it to us. He, he puts it in our account. So God sees us as righteous in Christ. And so we will shine forth as the sun in him, if we're in him. Paul talked about that. Philippians chapter two, verse eight. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. If by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And maybe the clearest passage of all is 2 Corinthians 5.21 where Jesus' death is explained like this. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that what? We might become the righteousness of God in him, in him. So we're only righteous in him and all who have received his righteousness by faith will shine as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, reminded believers, he said, you stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. That's exactly right. So listen to me now. You do not want to die and stand before God in a state of unrighteousness because you're a bad fish if you do that and you'll be taken away. Don't want to do that. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why God sent him that's why he endured so much for you. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 64, 4, he says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are as like a filthy garment and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So don't count on your own righteousness to stand before God. It's filthy already. The righteousness of Christ is pure and it's sufficient for everything. And possessing that as a gift of God, it satisfies God's justice and makes you clean in God's eyes. That's the beauty of the gospel. And it's just tragic that Rob Bell would know those things and deny them and deny them to people. It's interesting that people say, well, a good God would not create hell. I mean, in their minds, a good God would let wickedness just run free. Just let sin abound forever as it has for all of human history. This, the same creatures that do so much ill in our world, they should have their free reign in eternity. They should be allowed to run around in heaven, right? But our text this morning will not allow you to accept a God that would let sin go on forever and pollute everything. He's good, and good also means just. And he is set to end evil. He's gonna wrap it up put it away in the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this parable exists, these words in the Bible exist to assure you that that is what is gonna happen on the great day. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. People will say, hmm, that just can't be. God wouldn't have a fiery furnace. That must be some kind of a metaphor, you know? It can't be the metaphor. The dragnet is the metaphor. The guys on the beach are the metaphor. The explanation is what's really gonna happen. See? So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, verse 49, and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not the parable it's what the parable pictures, and that's the fact. If you think about it, the parable of the wheat and the tares, you know, you're talking about wheat, and they separate the tares, and they burn them in the fire. That, that's kind of...
kind of a metaphor, you know, that, that the parable part is, but when Jesus gets down to explaining it in verse 41 and 42, the idea of burning describes what's really gonna happen. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, gather out of the kingdom all stumbling blocks, all who commit lawlessness, and will throw them in the furnace of fire. So, in that parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the explanation as well as the parable include the idea of burning. The burning tares in real life matches the burning of lost souls in an afterlife. Then some people will just say, you know, that explanation is just sort of following the imagery in the field that they would burn tares, so he's just kind of using that as a metaphor. And the, yeah, but that doesn't work in this dragnet one because they didn't burn fish. And I think that's another reason it's here. You, it, you can't think that this burning is metaphorical. It's, it's real because it's the explanation of the dragnet thing. You don't burn catfish with, without scales if you find them in your net. That's not what you do with them. Yet in this parable, Jesus chooses the same description of what's going to happen to the wicked as he does with the tares, which you do burn in real life. All I'm just saying is that's not a metaphor. And it's consistent all throughout his teaching. So he is saying that hell is real and plenty of folks are going there. And some people so hate the idea of the fire of the hell, they just say, well, that's, that must be, even in the explanation, it must be a metaphor. Fine, let's say it's a metaphor. I'll give, I'll give you that for a minute. If the fire is a metaphor, what's it a metaphor for? I mean, what's it explaining? Great suffering. So even if the fire is a metaphor and it's, it's, it's just sort of an image, the weeping and gnashing of teeth is the reality. Supreme loss, grief, agony, weeping, Nothing hurts like fire. And Jesus chooses fire to describe the experience of being separated from God and pulled out of his kingdom. So why would we deny what Jesus teaches so plainly? There's a theologian named Denny Burke and he says it this way. We don't take sin seriously because we don't take God seriously. We have so imbibed of the banality of our God-belittling spirit of the age that our sins hardly trouble us at all. Our sins seem small because we regard God as small. Thus the penalty of hell, eternal conscious suffering under the wrath of God, always seems like an overreaction on God's part. If we knew God better, we wouldn't think like that. I think he's dead on right with that. So that's it. This, the sentimental, unholy God who thinks that sin is a trifle that's not the biblical God. He's not the God men will stand before when they die. He's not the God you will stand before when you die. Those are just the facts, man. Facts from the lips of the Savior of the world. If we want to be saved, he tells us how to do it. Saved from God. Yes, we need to be saved from God. Saved from the just and proper wrath of God on evil. The facts are that God is infinitely holy and hates sin. The facts are also that his love is as, as great as his holiness and he has made a way for us to be saved from our sin and his wrath. To be in his love, to come to him humbly, to accept what Christ did for you by faith, to bow your knee to him as Lord and King means that you, if you do that, you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father and you'll live with him forever. That's the promise we have. Both are true. Let's pray. Our great Father, help us choose our path well. You are holy and just as well as merciful and full of love. 
And by your mercy, let us all see our own sin the way you do and grasp how heinous it is in your holy eyes. And let us love your goodness and holiness and run to your saving mercy in Jesus our Lord. It's in his name that we pray, amen.